I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Bear before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. To ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory in spite of all terror. Feel like humanity could sustain one more global crisis. The Middle East is back up in flames and the sparks are flying in the streets of every major city across the West. Despite the chaos, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. What is she saying? Dr. Michael Thiessen and myself, Timothy Tyso, are going to break down the cultural and religious implications of the brutal conflict taking place in and around Israel tonight. Uh, welcome to the other club. All of you who are actually here in the other club with us. Woo! Come on, we're, we're shooting live from Trinity Baptist Church in Burlington. Yeah. It's a good night tonight. Go ahead. So this proof positive that people do actually, uh, they don't think we're that ugly and that they would share a room with us. Uh, our parents so, are here, so yeah. that's... Awesome. <laughs> Mine wouldn't even come, so uh, <laughs> we'll figure that out. Uh, but it's, Mike, it's good to be with you. Um, it's such a joy to have you, and it's an honor to have you, our audience, with us. Um, and of course, our listeners who are grabbing this throughout the week, um, thank you, as always, for um, supporting the show and all you do to, um, to help get the message out that we're, uh, that we're producing here. Um, which, by the way, this show is produced by Liberty Coalition Canada, of course, in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. Liberty Coalition Canada exists, as Mike just pointed out, to establish Christ's justice and righteousness and also to defend those who stand. ChristianWeek.org exists to provide a practical, balanced, and hope-filled perspective on national and global issues. So for all of those of you who are here and, of course, listening at home, make sure you go over to ChristianWeek.org. I'm not sure if you've heard about that little website, but it is basically a, um, a news curator website where we bring together Tim is the lead editor and brings together articles from all around the world in order to uh, in, encourage Christians and so we do this in audio and that's in in um, print form so uh, before we get started everybody one last call for the spark leadership conference in South Carolina it's coming up next week October 31st to November 1st that is where we are going to be platforming Canadian pastors in South Carolina trying to spark the American church uh, to understand what's going on globally. And we want to spark them to faithfulness. We want to spark them to awareness. And of course, drawing them back to a biblical worldview. So if any of you Canadians want to escape, I hear it's going to turn really cold next week. Yes. Um, that is not necessarily true, but you should imagine it. <laughs> Close enough. And um, for those of you who are listening to the podcast in the U.S., we'd like you to book a flight, jump over. We know that you don't travel out of the U.S. because only 40% of Americans have their passports. Did you know that? That's a crazy stat. So anyways, tickets are $50 and available at sparkconferences.org. So Tim, why is the other club, and uh, just so you know, we were going to shoot a Liberty Coalition, uh, Liberty like Liberty Lounge live, and uh, Andrew decided to um, have children, so he's waiting for twins to arrive any minute. And uh, Matthew was unavailable to fly all the way out, so we're shooting 
the other club, going to release this yeah. uh, tomorrow. Why are we addressing such a monumental issue of Israel and the current battle with Hamas and Hezbollah yeah. and the known every world. every instinct in me, as well as some of the wiser voices in my life, said, "Why tackle this subject on your podcast?" And I think I said that to you. There's a lot of issues um, that are germane to Canadian culture, um, and uh, I could read the text on. that you actually sent me if you wanted. No, don't read that. They don't want to yeah, hear you that. Can get the king a nuance this week. So, um, but but. But the implications, as I said in the introduction, are immediate to us, um, and, and we cannot help but respond. Uh, and the reason why I think we need to address issues as contentious as this is because we live in an age um, where never has so much pressure been exerted on you and me to form an opinion and to do so quickly, and to do so within the scope of what the allowable opinion is. Um, and so you're discouraged from independent thought, you're discouraged from independent inquiry and analysis. Um, and so our aim is to provide that for those who are willing to actually uh, step outside the, um, the zeitgeist or the, uh, the talking points of, of our culture. Uh, and the second reason is that today's um, reaction among I, I have to say, especially among youth, which I would consider basically my age and down. <laughs> so I'm still within that. <laughs> and uh, you have four children. But I exempt myself from this analysis. Uh, today's youth and educated class, and I'll put that very deliberately uh, in there, is, is coming at this issue as they are with all issues from a critical theory lens. Uh, and that is a, a class conflict lens, and it corrupts their ethical judgments. So it actually leaves them unable to rightly ethically evaluate what's going on. Um, and, and they're hardly thus phased by the brutality of what they're seeing. Um, it's justified by this lens. Um, and when they're pushed to address that violence, even, even the CBC is asking, isn't this a little bit brutal even for Hamas? Um, and, and, what, and what this class of thinkers is saying is, well, it's justified because it's an oppressed class against an oppressor class. And I'm just going to tell a story, Mike, and you're going to love that I'm bringing this up. Well, but I my, think I looked at, I bet you we're going to tell the same story because I just looked it up on my phone. I don't think you're going to tell the story I'm about to tell because oh. it's about you. Okay. Um, so we're in, we're having coffee. It's literally the, about that story. Okay. We're in having coffee in Guelph um, in the only empty table we could find in the whole city. Um, and it's jam-packed with uh, university students and, and all, and we're talking the full spectrum. We're talking the spectrum was, was represented there. And uh, <laughs> the, the, the coffee server comes over to our table and drops our Americanos down. I and just my, had a normal coffee. I no, you didn't. You had an Americano. You okay. treated me. I mean, I'm just complimenting okay. your generosity. Right. Okay. So uh, Mike says to the guy, hey, what's a South African uh, doing out here in Guelph? And the guy kind of looks at him like this, and, and he's like, what? And he said, aren't you from, where are you from? And the guy goes, I'm Canadian. Well, I said, no, you, you have a South, South African little pin right here. So the guy goes, I'm Canadian. And, and Mike goes, oh, what's the flag on your lapel? And he goes, that's Palestine. Now, and, and I, I just, I, just I, I, I couldn't, I didn't know whether 
to burst into tears, to, to howl in laughter, or just to actually just jump through the glass out onto the street and just vacate that space. I almost yelled Allah Akbar. So, so that we could be in a safe um, space. Only on the other cloud be safe. Are you able to address this subject and actually intermix uh, laughter? So the reason why I'm looking at my phone is because I actually thought it was a South African flag and I have checked it. And the South African flag and the Palestinian flag have similarities. I wasn't just out to lunch so my dad on that right. point. So, and but that, that, just to just to deepen that point, there's there's and there was a poster on the bulletin board, the community notes bulletin board, saying emergency rally for Palestine. And uh, my family was in Guelph early that week, and we saw a march going up Wyndham Street. Um, so this is very <laughs> pertinent to to our especially our youth culture and our sort of extreme Marxist left-leaning um, culture and yeah. they're bombarding us with with this viewpoint and so we want to come at this and sort of address this from more of a historic conservative Christian worldview so okay, that's so let's short get answer. to it yeah. we're gonna we're gonna go through uh, a timeline of the land dispute in Israel and a brief review of Islam so you will hear in the news today you will hear chants of people saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Uh, this chant is a long favorite of Palestinian terror groups. And if you just do a little bit of geographical looking, just Google Israel, um, from the river is the Jordan River, to the sea is the Mediterranean Sea. And those two things go vertically through the entire area. And so when that phrase is being used, it is not talking about removing Israel from Gaza or the West Bank because they're not in Gaza or the West Bank right now. It is a chant that actually means removing the nation of Israel from the face of the map. And this is something that uh, is often misunderstood when you're talking to individuals they, they don't quite understand the Arab-Muslim view of what should be happening in the land. So um, the state of Israel, uh, which is now uh, corresponds to the area of Judea, Samaria, Udamea, and uh, Galilee, of course, uh, was inhabited by Jews. And in AD 134, the Romans expelled the Jews because of um, a self-testifying Messiah and a revolt. And it was the Romans who renamed the area Palestine. Do you know where they got the name Palestine? They looked up in their Bibles for the ancient enemy of the Jews, and they named it after the Philistines. So the word Palestine is really a reference to Philistine. So so this has been an insult to the, to the Jewish people by the Romans since 134 AD. And so just a few things on that, that early history. Uh, later it became under the control of the Turks. And um, I'm listening to a great book by a guy named Robert Spencer. That's one of the things we like to do on the podcast is pass on to you great sources. So Robert Spencer is an author... I'm going to be interviewing him on my podcast in the next two weeks. But uh, he's wrote a book called The Palestinian Delusion. A lot of really good information there. 
And he basically uh, runs through the history that the land was ruled by, you know, the Ottoman Empire, deserted in, in many respects, but there was a Jewish remnant all the way throughout history of, of Jewish people who wanted to remain in the land. But you had a very multicultural land, and you certainly did not have a Palestinian people group. You had Arabs coming in and out and traversing through the land, run by the Turks, and then you have the Jews who remain settled there. So after the Turks gave up it, uh, the land, it became un under the rule of the British uh, up until the, um, the Second World War, basically. So, you, so what you have is you, you have the end of World War I, which is the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Weimar Republic, and, and all of those sort of uh, pre-modern political arrangements. Yeah. Um, and then you have England actually move in at the end of World War I and establish sort of a, a provisional caretaker role in, in this land. So from early on in that rule, England acknowledged in its correspondence, we have all these records, uh, England proposed and, and really um, asserted the need for a two-state solution because what they see is a, a water and oil um, phenomenon going on with the Arabs and the Jews. And so they, from the beginning, recognized the potential for violence and there was ongoing violence that they were interceding with. And really what, the, what England was saying was, we don't want jihadi violence taking place against us. Um, and so this, this two-state solution goes back 100 years in terms of um, its political um, suggestion. And, and I just want to make a point that, how many people are familiar with the term Tim used, two-state solution? Okay? Yeah. So the reason why it's really important for you to understand this most of the Western nations have always been pro-Israel publicly, but because of their significant fear of the open uh, jihad threats, they have been secretly, openly, publicly Israel, but by policy and restriction, really pro-Arab. And so, for example, the English during that time between the First and Second World War, the, the, the Jewish people who were in the land were trying to invite more Jews to come and immigrate. And we're talking immigrate legally, purchasing land, like normal immigration that we would expect. And England actually would say, you know, we want a two-state solution so they would limit the amount of Jews who could come back to the land so that there would not be control of the area by a Jewish state. And so um, this, is a, this is a very, it's actually not that important for the ongoing discussion other than it's, it's certainly what the Palestinians use to throw back at the West. You promised this, so now you have to, so now you have to do this. We'll talk about what's yeah. really going on later. And so to, to quickly bring it up to politically where we're at today is essentially at the end of World War II, England said, uh, we'd like to move out. Um, this is not a, as fun a job as it, we'd like to think it might be. I think that was a technical term. Technical term. So they write a letter to the UN, the United Nations, and they say, can you put this area on your agenda for the next session? And can you guys kind of come up with a solution? Essentially, the UN in that process recognizes that they self-consciously don't have the power or the prerogative to set up a nation state. So the idea that the UN granted Israel favorable status 
and establish a nation on their behalf is, is false. The UN made recommendations, but they did not enforce or establish any nation state. They were self-consciously uh, restrained in that say, saying and stating that all people groups have the right to self-determination. And in fact, any responsibility to self-determination as well. Uh, and so they were wary of creating or enforcing any solution, especially any solution that would ensue uh, violence. So all during these negotiations, there was uh, the Arab Higher Committee, which declared and corresponded with the UN. Uh, they said that they would consider any attempt by the Jews or any power group to establish a Jewish state in Arab territory would be an act of aggression, which would be resisted by self-defense, uh, by force, and the other thing you have to recognize about this was they were presented a two-state solution uh, and rejected it. They said, it's all ours, and we believe in the annihilation of Israel. We don't believe in peacefully coexisting with them. Um, and so this is the, that, that essentially, at the end of World War II, is the current political situation that we're in now. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the wars um, that ensued after, because the Declaration of Independence took place, and we're going to talk about that. But... To summarize, the region basically existed as a stateless void from the end of the Ottoman Empire and even likely during, as you said, neglected, like uh, sort of a podium. Yeah, there's, there's, there's tons of historical area, right? documents of, of travelers going through the area talking about how this area has been abandoned by, mm -hmm. by so many different people groups and they're, they're, you know, identifying there's just a, a small number of these people and these people and, the, and of course, and Jewish people were always on that list. But this is not a nationhood. This is correct. This is nothing that has been self-determined. And so, piece of information that you'll find helpful if you want to do any primary source reading, you can look it up. Is uh, the UN uh, Declaration 181, uh, which actually gives the recommendations for the the two-state solution. It was voted on by the UN, but again, it's not binding, and there's no enforcement mechanism. It's it's literally a recommendation from a body of nations. Um, and the, uh, at the end of the British mandate, which was in May of 1947, I believe, I actually should have that date, but I, it's, I think it's May, May 14th, 15th, 48. 1948. The day prior to that, the exp expiration of that mandate, the Zionist leadership unilaterally, which means without Arab um, cooperation, declared um, the existence of the state of Israel. Uh, and so knowing that that would be considered by the Arabs as an act of aggression because they knew no matter, well, we have the right, according to the UN, to declare ourselves a nation. However, we do so at the recognition that the Arabs are going to immediately respond by force. And so this was a, an act of conviction. Um, what motives were mixed in there, we don't necessarily know. Well, no, we're, comment, so we're going to read yeah. the Israeli Declaration of Independence yeah. for you because sometimes being in the primary texts is so important, yeah. and you hear the intentions within yeah. it, and you hear all of the permissions that mm -hmm. they allude to. So this is, this is the text of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here our spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here they first attended uh, to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave the world the Bible. Impelled by this historic and traditional attachment, Jews strove in every successive generation to reestablish themselves in the ancient homeland. In ancient decades, they returned uh, in their masses. Pioneers coming to Israel in defiance of restrictive legislation 
Remember when I said that, that England was actually restricting them from returning home? So they're saying we did, we, we did that uh, in defiance of res restrictive legislation and defenders. They made the deserts bloom, revived the Hebrew language, built villages and towns, created a thriving community, controlling its own economy and culture, loving peace, but knowing how to defend itself, bringing the blessings of progress to all the country's inhabitants and inspiring towards independent nationhood. In, 18, seven, uh, in 1897, the summons of the spiritual father of the uh, Jewish state, Theodore Herzl, the first Zionist Congress, convened and proclaimed the right of the Jewish people to national rebirth in its own country. So this is where they start referencing the UK and the UN. The right was recognized in the Balfour Declaration on the 2nd of November 1917 and reaffirmed in the mandate of the League of Nations, which in particular gave international sanction to the historic connection between the Jewish people and Israel and to the right of the Jewish people to rebuild a national home. The catastrophe which recently befell the Jewish people, the massacre of millions of Jews in Europe, was another clear demonstration of the urgency of solving the problem of its own homelessness and reestablishing in and a reestablishing in Israel the Jewish state, which would open the gates of the homeland wide to every Jew and confer upon the Jewish people a status of fully privileged member of the country of nations. Survivors from the Nazi Holocaust in Europe, as well as Jews from other parts of the world, continued to my continued to migrate to Israel, undaunted again by difficulties, restrictions, and dangers, and never ceased to assert their right to life, to a life of dignity, freedom, and honest toil in their national homeland. In the Second World War, the Jewish community of this country contributed its full share to the struggle for freedom and peace-loving nations against the forces of Nazi wickedness and by the blood of its soldiers and its war effort gained a right to be reckoned among the peoples who founded the United Nations. On the 29th of November, 1947, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution calling for the establishment of a Jewish state in Israel. The General Assembly, Assembly, the General Assembly required the inhabitants of Israel to, to take such steps as were necessary on their part for this resolution. This recognition of the United Nations of the right of the Jewish uh, implementation uh, to establish their state is irrevocable. And of course, the, the UN put requirements upon them on what they would actually have to do and provide for individuals who were living in the land at the time. So the, the, the declaration goes on to read, accordingly, we, the members of the People's Council, representatives of the Jewish community of Israel and the Zionist movement, are here assembled on the day of the termination of the British mandate over Israel and by virtue of our natural and historic right and on the strength of the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly hereby declare the establishment of the Jewish state in Israel to be known as the state of Israel. You want to keep reading? Well, I'm, I'm going to jump down because w you talked about the motives that are in here and there's an astounding paragraph that's right here that I want to jump to, Mike. Um, it reads, we appeal in the very midst of the onslaught launched against us now for months to the Arab inhabitants of the state of Israel to preserve peace 
and to participate in the upbuilding of the state on the basis of full and equal citizenship and due representation in all its provisional and permanent institutions. So in their constitution, in the midst of uh, uh, attacks, the, the forceful and ongoing attacks from Arabs, they include in their Declaration of Independence a clause that urges Arabs to participate in their society, to preserve peace, and gives them full and equal citizenship. So, so these are things that are built into the fabric of this country and, and to this day are preserved. There are Arabs in Israel who have passports, who have full participation in the legal process uh, and, and in the political process. They can vote. Um, they can become president of the country as an Arab which in the United States, you have, to be in a, uh, you have to be born in the United States to become a president. In Israel, you can be an Arab and, and, and politically uh, rise to great heights. So, uh, then- Furthermore, the very next paragraph of the declaration says, we extend our hand to all of the neighboring states and their pe- peoples in an offer of peace and good neighborliness to an appeal to them to establish bonds of cooperation and m- mutual help with the sovereign Jewish people settled in its own land, the state of Israel is prepared to do its share in a common effort for the advancement of the entire Middle East. And so those are two very important statements that you're going to see as we move into Muslim material never are repeated or are never are, are returned. Those, those offers of peace are batted down ruthlessly and that's what we're that's why we're walking through this i i want as we walk just before we get into describing jihad and some of the uh the 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 quran texts that talk about it i just want to say take a minute to say i i honestly have struggled in the past with the moral equivalency argument We're going to talk about that later. But what I mean by that is all of this has ugliness to it in the sense of of there there has never been peace since Israel declared uh, their independence. And so there have always been Arab stories, Christian Arab stories. There's always been stories of look what the nation of Israel did to me. And part of the reason why we've tackled this content because so number one, war is ugly and, and all of our hearts go out to any of the women and children, any of the uh, individuals who are not engaged in war and who have, to, who have to endure something happening around them, like a, like a house exploding or like, a, like, like a, a parent dying or a child you know, uh, uh, being hit by a bullet. Like this is not easy material to walk through. And I just wanted to admit to you that this whole argument that you're going to be hearing coming about moral equivalency, the Jews are basically the same as the Arabs. And the problem is they just want too much land. That's not reflected in any way in the primary texts that we are going over. So from the Israeli side, there is a clear desire for peace and cooperation with respect to the borders that they are trying to establish. 
as we are now going to go into Muslim texts about jihad, you will see a much darker picture. And uh, again, we're going into source material. On yeah, it. there's also a difference when you, when, you, when you hear stories about Israeli soldiers or even, even troops and, and um, regiments who, are, who may be acting in inhumane ways toward Arabs. And, and that certainly does take place. Even Israeli citizens who take a very arrogant approach to Christians and Arabs in their midst um, and are very derogatory toward them. The, these things certainly happen, um, but there's a difference between adhering to your worldview or departing from it. So though those things take place, those are not in keeping with the spirit of the independence of Israel. They are actually departures from it, whereas the violence that takes place from within the Muslim community is in keeping with their worldview. It is actually enforcing and advancing it. And that's the difference is that on the one hand, they would be, they would be uh, the, the, the Arabs and the Muslims would be affirmed in what they're doing, whereas those with, with uh, moral integrity within the Israeli uh, ranks would find those things abhorrent. Though they do take place, they are not in keeping with, they're actually departure from it. That's an important distinction. Yeah, let me try to give two down to earth examples of that. So if anybody had their camera on and they were gonna live, I don't know if it, is it possible to do live tweeting? I'm sure it is. Is there another format that's better for live stuff? Facebook library? So if anybody would ever just come around and watch me play a sport, my worldview on the sports field would be inconsistent with my worldview as a Christian. And I would have to go back on camera and go, yes, yeah, someone caught me tripping someone, pushing someone, punching someone, and I'm sorry. But I departed from my faith, my Christian worldview, because of anger or competitiveness, and I am sincerely sorry for it and sorry that you caught me on camera. <laughs> Tim, earlier on this evening, took an hour and a half to put on a tie. His wife has video evidence of this. I laughed, I almost lost it, my voice. It was worth it. I kid you not, we arrived in the parking lot and from five o'clock to 6.30, Tim had his shirt off, he had his pants off. He, I don't know what he was doing, but he has struggled to put on a tie. Now, the smarter person- Where are you going with this? <laughs> that departs, <laughs> departs from your normal worldview where you're usually the more coordinated carpenter right. intellect. And I got to enjoy a moment where you were inconsistent. So of course, now that Twitter, now that you are able to capture moments of injustice, but we are not taught, but the way that Tim explained it is absolutely correct. Those moments of injustice, someone in the Jewish state would have to come back and say, I'm sorry, that was not lawful. I should not have done that. What we're about to read in the Muslim texts is this is exactly what you are supposed to do to Jews and Christians. So, what, so as the Arabs... Really not that bad on the sports field. My, uh, well, okay. We'll leave it at that. Go ahead. Um, as the Arabs... Nobody laughs, so they don't believe that I am well, like that. Okay. We'll get Simon on the phone, maybe. Um, so, what, so as the Arabs promised, uh, violence did ensue. A, a series of four major wars did break out um, as a result of um, unprovoked attacks 
and violent outbursts from the Arab community. And the Arab community within Lebanon, Jordan, um, dispersed from all over. So this was not state-on-state -state conflict. This was uh, acts of terror, um, which a state has a very difficult time responding to, don't they? Because it's not, an, it's not a declared war that you can just you know, muster your troops and meet somewhere and bl blow each other to smithereens. You, you've got insurgencies and you've got all these factions and everywhere. There's not an organized military to respond to. Uh, so they immediately engaged in jihad. Jordan, That's Iraq, Syria, yeah. Lebanon, Pakistan. Saudi Arabia, yeah. and all the way as far as Pakistan. So we have to look at, and this, this is, they are self-consciously engaging in, in <clears throat> jihad, which uh, soft peddling analysis will say, well, this just means struggle. It just means to struggle, spiritual struggle. You know, we can identify with that as Christians. Um, but to actually determine the Islamic teaching on the matter, you have to go look at the Quran. Um, uh, Sunnah 9.5, referred to as the verse of the sword, uh, was revealed toward the end of Muhammad's life. Uh, and when a certain number of months have passed, then kill the mush, mushrikan, who are unbelievers, wherever you find them, capture them and besiege them and prepare for them each and every ambush. So not talking like metaphorical struggle here, we're talking about siege and ambush and death toward those who are unbelievers. By the way, how did Jesus say to engage with unbelievers? Was it death and destruction and intimidation? No, it was prayer and intervention and acts of good deeds, even toward our enemies. Um, but if, so this is the polar opposite. But if they repent and perform as salat and give zakrat, uh, then leave them on their way. So if they submit to you, then you can leave them. Um, Surah 8, 9, 839, and fight them until there is no more. Pretty thorough. Surah 929, fight against those who believe not in Allah, nor in the last day, nor forbid that which was forbidden by Allah and his messenger to those who acknowledge not the religion of the true Islam among the people of their scripture, Christians or Jews, until they feel themselves subdued. And for those of you who haven't listened to my interview last week with David Wood, you need to listen to that because we go through the three phases of jihad, we go through the pillars of Islam, and we talk a little bit about the difference between the, the Quran, which would be their official book, and then the, uh, the, um, the Hadiths, which are the books of interpretation of the book, and within that is also the, the expectation of the Muslim can follow Muhammad's exa example. So if you haven't found it in the Quran and you haven't found it in the Hadiths, you can also just look at his historical example and get your lead from that. And so we're going to read a few, of the, uh, a, a few of the texts from the Hadiths, which are following in this example of following Muhammad's lead. This, this text particularly jumped out at me, and, and I want to share it for that reason. <clears throat> this one really drills down to the conviction behind this violence. Um, this, is, this is not uh, incidental to their worldview. Listen to this. The hour will not be established. This is an eschatological claim. The, the, the hour of glory, the, the completion of your mission will not be established until you fight with the Jews and the stone behind which a Jew is hiding will say, O oh Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me, so kill him. 
The hour will not have passed until the rocks are betraying the hiding Jew. By the way, this is not depicting a, a scenario of war. This is depicting a, a scenario of, of hunting and, and, and annihil- is, exterminating. This is actually <laughs> depicting a picture of exactly what we saw Hamas do. Correct. In the last months. Yeah. Because these rocks, were, I'm going to I'm going to read another reference that is similar to that, and it is in the context of the rocks and the trees that people put up around their homes to adorn their homes. So you know when you move into a new house, you you do you do some landscaping. You want to bring the value of your property, value of it. You want to make things look nice, and so you tend to your property. And so the, again, th- this is. This is with the image of you go and you find them in their property and you do this uh, to them. Let me just read um, some of the excerpts from Hassan Alabana. I'm, I'm sure I am butchering that. Well, in um, 1928, he, uh, he founded the Muslim Brotherhood. So just for context, this is not some ancient, um, you know, follower yeah, this of Muhammad. Is, this is, you know, modern modern day this would be what we would find in one of the hadiths because he's an authoritative interpreter of the quran Um, jihad is an obligation from allah on every muslim and cannot be ignored nor evaded allah has ascribed great importance to jihad and has made the reward of martyrs and fighters uh, in his way a splendid one those who can only find excuses however have been warned of extremely dreadful punishments and Allah has described them with the most unfortunate names. He has reprimanded them for their cowardice and lack of spirit and congested them to their, for their wickedness and truancy. So, I, 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 it, look, if you just go look and, you, and look at any, anybody who's following Islamic sources, you will find in the Quran, you will find in the Hadith, just verse after verse after verse about, about, about jihad being a responsibility. And I want to mention it in the context of even when the Israelis declared independence, one of the things that happened is that when the Israelis declared independence, the Arab nations around encouraged the Muslims of, of uh, living in the land of Israel to leave the land because they thought if they would leave the land then they would all be in safety and then they would come and immediately attack the Jews, defeat them in a week or two and everybody who left the land would be able to come back. And one of the strange tensions was if you were an Arab, on one hand you were being told leave now so that the troops can come in and on the other hand you were being told But if you leave and you don't offer resistance under jihad, then you will be be, uh, labeled, you you will be placed in in the idea of someone who is um, cooperating with Israel. So you have this really mixed instruction from the Arab countries uh, coming out, and it's all around these these types of statements. He says says the weakness of abstention, so if you fail to engage in jihad, and the evasion of jihad are regarded by Allah as one of the major sins, and as one of the seven sins that guarantee failure. So if you are a religious devotee um, of Islam, 
You want to please Allah. You, you want to, as, as Christians, we want to please our God. We want to live within the tenets of Christianity in a, in, in a way that's aligned. And so if you're a Muslim, if you have that same desire to be pleasing to your God, this is the instruction. This is, this is what compels people to strap C4 uh, under their waistcoats and overcoats on a bus. This is it. it it's for adherence to um, their religious puritism. And we picked like seven, seven, yeah. maybe ten quotes, if we even got to ten. The amount of, the amount of quotes you can find talking about um, Jews being dogs and pigs, coming from dogs and pigs, apes and dogs and pigs. And like, it is just so clear that jihad is a part of the Muslim worldview. And again, you have to, you have to again, these are, you have to listen to the podcast about David Wood. These are not our words. There are books teaching Muslims on how to engage in jihad. And there are three phases. The one, phase one, when you are, are, are greatly outnumbered. Phase two, when you have enough strength to stand your own. And phase three, when you have enough uh, power to wage war. And of course, that follows exactly with the life of how Muhammad gained power. That's why the Quran, the earlier surahs are written that say, make peace. And then he when, he, when he gathered more numbers and then he came and realized that the Jews and the Christians rejected him, then it was stand your ground. And, and then the third, when he had enough power, we have, the, we have the, the, the conquering of Medina and Mecca. So the reason why this is really important because the modern framing, every single thing you're going to hear in media and, and, and even within the, in, in the broader worldview discussion is this idea of moral equivalency. So one example of that is the media keeps calling Hamas supporters pro-Palestinians. And, in, and in, they're doing two things at the same time. When they call them pro-Palestinians, they are not calling them terrorists. And I don't know about you, but like I have to put down my phone sometimes with the amount of grotesque evil atrocities that have happened in the last month. You know, we were talking with someone today. She was telling me the story about it. And I, I was watching the video of, of the family and, and saying, that's not going to be shown here, is it? Like, just evil torture of women and children and, and husbands and wives, all of these things. So on one hand, they're not calling them terrorists. So for, for a Western intellect to look at the chopping up of children, the, the chopping up of women, the, the gouging out of the eyes of men, the, the putting naked women in the back of a truck and driving around with her for the afternoon after she's been dead, to say pro-Palestinian, you have to be lying. Like, we would never describe it that way. The second thing they're doing is they are again reframing the conversation so that you think of moral equivalency and, and occupation. What do you want to say about that? The, well, the whole, they also are um, commandeering phrases um, that trigger other reactions from us, and occupation is one. Um, occupation 
has this uh, has this emotional force on us where we we imagine ourselves being oppressed by a physical occupying force. Um, the occupation of Germany um, by foreign forces was one of the things that Hitler um, leveraged in order to gain political support because there is such a reaction to a people who want to be sovereign to occupation. So that's why they call this an occupation. It's patently untrue. In fact, Israel won... Uh, the Gaza Strip, um, after the, the, the wars, uh, the Six-Day War and the, the War of Yom Kippur, they won those uh, land pieces in those uh, wars, which, by the way, they didn't start, but they annihilated their opponents, the Arabs. They annihilated them and they captured this land. Then they gave it back. So they, they've allowed, and they actually supply <clears throat> electricity and clean water to that community. Uh, so to, to characterize it as Israel occupying Arab uh, territory is, is ludicrous. Um, the, uh, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's dishonest. Dishonest. It, yeah, it's Palestine not crazy. It's dishonest. Palestine has had parliamentary elections since 2006. And when I say Palestine, I mean Gaza uh, and the West Bank. Um, Arabs enjoy citizenship and free association yeah, and, and participation and, and in all apartheid. types of level. And apartheid is the other word because we think of South Africa. We think right. of the 90s, we think of um, the, the overthrowing of the apartheid and the, once again the mixing of races, uh, ethnicities, and we think of that in the South of America too, uh, in the United States, where we, we think of um, social apartheid, where we had drinking fountains in schools and buses segregated Segregation would be a softer form of that, but apartheid, again, it triggers in us an, an, a reaction. And so it's intentionally being used to mislead away from the, the actual circumstances on the ground, which do not represent oppression. They do not represent apartheid. Uh, they're not there in any way. And, you, and I've watched videos of Arabs who say, I live in Israel. My life is wonderful. All I have to do is not uh, jihad them. And they're actually very nice people. Right, so it's a low bar that Israel is looking for. Um, so that that is just to say, uh, we and we've looked at the documents, the way they regard each other as a people group, and there there is no mutual respect. There is no mutual political acknowledgement. One says, "I will be happy when there's a smoking crater and these people are gone." The other says, "Hey, if you want to come over and like get citizenship, that's fine. You just can't uh, murder us in the street, and we'd be fine with that." Um, so the difference is just stark. And this is really important because this is the pressure point for the West. So when you bump up to anyone, when you, when you bump up to a leftist or when you bump up to a Muslim in the West, uh, when you bump up with a sympathizer, this is, the this is the pressure point. This is the immediate pressure point of two states. One is oppressive or at very least they're both equal. They're both full of injustice and you need to defend both. Mm. And you could say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Like, Gaza's great. Let Gaza be Gaza. Just can they stop bombing Israel or can they stop coming in and firing rockets? Can they, can, can they stop parachuting in and massacring families? No, they can't because it's their worldview. They have to dominate Israel. They're, they're told to do that. Um, and so I don't know how, how all of you are, but... I find, I find a lot of pressure points come before you're being contentious in a conversation. And you really just need to, to understand that this is the heavy point 
And it requires you to weigh through that and say, absolutely not. The reason why I stand with Israel right now is because jihad is intrinsically a part of the Muslim worldview. And that is why I also want all Muslims to bow the knee to Jesus, to repent of their sin, to turn away from that insidious, terrible, anti-culture building worldview. And I preached at Trinity this week, and it, it's going to take the tackling of this great big idol, Allah and, and Allah's idol beside him, the prophet Muhammad, it is going to take it, fortitude to say, no, I will not bow to that false idol because that false idol breathes death. Mike, you brought up anti-culture building and I want to make a point on that, that the, the United Nations has extended an invitation to all people groups for, for self-determination. So why the Arabs haven't said, well, we've got a nice little strip of land here on the Mediterranean, by the way. Um, why, don't just, why don't we just call this a nation? We've got two million people here. Um, you know, maybe we could negotiate. If we, if we uh, declared a nation here, maybe we could negotiate a little bit of extra land into here. You know, maybe we could work with Israel on a little bit of territorial disputes. We'd create a peace treaty. We'd honor it. We'd set up a banking system. We'd set up a judiciary. We'd set up a, uh, you know, a, a, a governing process. Have they done any of that? No, they rip up their water pipes and they turn them into bombs and they send them over into Israel. And by the way, Israel has guaranteed the religious rights of Arabs to go and visit holy places in Jerusalem and, and to practice Islam in its, in its ritualistic sense, not its jihadic sense. But the problem is the Arabs are like, oh, no, 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 we're not interested in that. We're interested in domination. Well, that's because we're just in dominion. That is because they're being consistent with their exactly. worldview, and we're so, going to talk about that. And, and that's that's why it's it's an impasse yeah. because you don't have a worldview that that sees um, mutually cooperative states existing in that area. And it is an impasse, brothers and sisters, all around the world. Yeah. So there have been protests in every nation around the world. And I believe that this is a very specific move from phase one of jihad to phase two of jihad all around the world. So phase two of jihad is, I won't bug you, but you're not going to say anything about, you're not going to say anything about me or my prophet. So, we're going, we going to bow in prayer and shut down the street. And you're fine as long as you stay away. But we are standing our ground and you will do nothing about it. And if you do nothing about it, we're fine. But if you were to do something about it, then we will respond with force. So it's, it is a very specific move. So all of these protests around the world are a declaration of phase two of jihad. In the United States, Jackson, Al Albany, Boston, Riverside, we had gays for Gaza and queers for Palestine in New York City. 
which of course, if they went to any of these places in, in the Islamic world, they would be killed immediately. They would be thrown off a building. Washington, D.C. We have, um, in Canada here, Toronto, Mississauga, Calgary, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Halifax, um, Edmonton had large pro-Palestinian demonstrations um, where, where you, if, if many of you are watching Rebel News as well, Rebel News documented like outright anti-Semitic calls. In the Mississauga protest, there was Taliban flags being flown in Canada. Taliban flags. So that's a point I want to jump into too, is that I mentioned this is taking place in Guelph earlier this week. And they were provided by a local police escort for this demonstration. And by the way, you say, like, okay, you want to wave flags in a street that represent a nation that you, you want to see budding somewhere over. Fine. When did these begin? After what? October 7th. Which was what? A jihad mass massacre, surprise attack upon the Jewish people. These people are celebrating and... and and pushing for more of what they saw. This is literal hate speech. It is, I want to see these people dead. I want to see them annihilated. I want to see them displaced. I want to see them gone. They are marching on behalf of that. And by the way, in, again, looking in Guelph, it was not all Arab people by any stretch. The generation just below me has been captured by these ideas. They believe they are standing with and oppressed people. And so on, on their behalf, they will overlook the most wicked and accessibly visible terrorist activities. When a generation ago, uh, the, you know, the young people would have united around um, like a pro-America, like after 9-11, or, or a pro-Western, or pro-Canadian. Uh, you know, we used to root for our own culture. That's been annihilated. People have well, been robbed from a, a sense of connection to their heritage, to their country, to their world, to, to the to the worldview that gave them the liberty to march up a street and oppose the you know the, the government. Um, so, it's a captured generation. So this is the connection, Tim. You mentioned it earlier. This is a connection to critical theory. So many of you will go, well, why would uh, rainbow flag people march with Palestinian flag people? And the answer is because within the critical theory world, which is oppressed versus the oppressor, class warfare, they have accepted minorities rise up. And we don't care who you are. If you're a professed minority, rise up. Well, what's your worldview? We don't care. Let's just join against uh, the system. And so the difficulty, like there's actual strategy to that. Uh, we Christians find it very hard to battle that because we find ourselves not being able to stand beside anybody just because they're a co-belligerent. For those of you who have watched Liberty Coalition Canada over the years, you'll know that that's always a, something that we're trying to figure out. Where can we lend our voice morally? But uh, the, the left does this in order to gather everybody who they, they put in their oppressed, critically oppressed classes and merge against the uh, hegemony, which is like the ruling class. So when you're, when you're talking to someone like this, like our friend, like our barista uh, at the cafe, you have to 
help that person understand you might be converging politically in this moment, but you understand that your convergence now threatens, uh, threatens your future. Uh, I don't even agree with your future, but they certainly don't agree with your future and are not going to respect your individual person. So these protests went around London, Birmingham, Belfast, uh, Sydney, uh, Sydney, Australia, France, uh, Berlin, Cape Town, South Africa. And there's one really significant story that came across uh, my, my reading desk this week, and it was the, the Muslims, uh, the title of, of the article is Muslims Conquer Germany in Berlin. And that's because the Muslims uh, showed a power of prayer in the capital and they seized control of a very historic um, Brandenburg gate. And they prayed at a very specific gate. And it, uh, it, the, the gate during the Cold War was, uh, was a real symbol of the heart of East Berlin, um, rendering it off limits to West Berliners. And so when the wall fell, it was a, it was a real victory for the West to be able to gather in this area. And um, they used a phrase about, about East and West in the prayer that was a clear reference back to we've now just conquered Berlin in the same way that when, when the West were, were able to, to come back in and, and, and the wall had fallen. And so uh, the, the, their very specific prayer during this was, Verily Allah has shown me the eastern and western part of the earth, and I saw the authority of my imam dominate all that I saw. So they're at, they're at the place where historically, when the Berlin Wall fall, fell, the east and the west met. And they met there and prayed and said, I look to the east and I look to the west and it has all been given to me. Now, I've never prayed that publicly. I don't know if it would go very well if I stood somewhere on a really high mountain and said that in Canada. I think I'd be arrested pretty quickly. So we're bringing all of this information to you to lead to this final section of the podcast tonight. And that is, okay, what do we Christians do? What are some things that we can think about? And of course, I want to categorize this um, in two areas, politically and personally. So we, we, have, a, we have a personal response, and, and evangelicals typically start with the personal responses, looking into scripture and say, what should I do personally? Um, we're going to start politically, and then we're going to end personally. Yeah. Uh, so the, the couple of things we just want to look at is this is a global uh, geopolitical issue. Um, and so the, the first question we should ask is what geopolitical policies should we endorse, uh, seek in our elected leaders or pressure our elected leaders to pursue? Um, last time I checked, we do live in a representative democracy. Um, so we ought to be thinking along those lines. Um, and we, this is a really good point because yeah. I've seen people here with with, 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 with uh, PPC buttons on, and mm -hmm. I'm going, yeah, great. Can, can we help different politicians in, in the country actually say something of substance about these policies? I'm sure you're sick and tired of question period being nothing but banter 
and useless drivel, this is the area where we can actually give to politicians, say, this is the policy that you should implement. I'll volunteer for you, but have you considered this policy to put um, on your platform? So if you, so the, the Canadian immigration policy right now uh, states that you can be found inadmissible uh, to Canada for any number of reasons. Can you go the paragraph up from there? Yeah. And read that part, which is also okay. from the Immigration, immigration Refugee, refugee Citizenship. citizenship. Uh, the Government of Canada does not ask applicants questions concerning their religion. Huh. What relevance could that have, right? Uh, therefore, does not hold data on applications made by refugees identifying as a targeted religious minority. Yet, the IRCC is working with the support of the whole Government of Canada to continue to facilitate safe passage and resettlement for at least... 40,000 vulnerable Afghan nationals, emphasizing individuals, <laughs> emphasizing individuals who supported Canada and our allies over the past two decades, women, LGBTQ letters and letters, people, human rights defenders, journalists, and members of religious and ethnic minorities. Okay, so I want you to read with more energy. Well, I, that, that's... Sometimes you do that, and it's like... Okay, like well, sure, let's go to sleep. You know, no, I'm just kidding. Well, it's, it's, I mean, this Looking, is you a, have to understand, yeah. number one, we don't ask religious questions. We don't keep religious applications of religious minorities. And then later on, on the same page, we're hoping to help people who are in religious and ethnic minorities. So you don't ask any religious questions. How can you identify religious minorities? And so you have to hear, you have to read between the words that they are, they are going to be implicitly denying Christians while being able to then emphatically support Muslims to come to the country because they don't have an official policy on it, but they have a personal preference down at the beginning of it about religious and ethnic minorities. And that includes LGBTQ plus people. And how would you even be able to identify that without digging into a little bit of their history? So it is a perfect um, conundrum, the official statements that we have on our website. Go for it. Which, which is not by accident, um, as Mike just pointed out. You could be found inadmissible for a number of reasons, such as security reasons, including espionage, subversion, which is an attempt to overthrow a government, which I think the truck convoy was... Um, was uh, accused don't of mix, that. Don't get people mixed up. No, it no. wasn't. I'm just saying. Or it's be just, better. It's amazing how you know they'll throw those kind of accusations at, oh, yeah. at, at people on, inflating bouncy castles and shoveling snow, but not those who might actually be doing it. Uh, three, violence or terrorism. Uh, or four, membership in an organization involved in any of these. Uh, two, human or international rights violations, including war crimes, crimes against humanity. You think any of those might have been uh, committed on October 7th and, and since then? Um, being a senior official in a government engaged in gross human rights violations, etc. Committing a crime, organized crime, uh, medical reasons or conditions that endanger public safety, such and such. But the point is, we just went through the religious text of Islam, which states that it is a moral and religious duty to engage in violence or terrorism. So if you identify as that religious minority, you are simultaneously saying, can I come to your country, which does not allow violence or terrorism, 
or even membership in an organization involves many of these. So if you belong to Islam, you're, you belong to an organization uh, that commits those prohibited activities. This is why for a long time the media has been saying uh, ex um, uh, Islamic extremists because it's an attempt to paint those most devoted and most pious as extreme and then paint this whole middle who have not yet had the courage to do jihad as the moderate, uh, the, the, those are the Muslims we like because you know, sometimes they eat you know, pork and they're just not that hardcore and I can play poker with them. Uh, but they are, they are not considered a, 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 a pietistic or orthodox uh, Muslim. And so can it, this is Canada's official, you pulled this from the official immigration policy, did you mm -hmm. not? Yeah. Like, are, do we have some issues with our immigration policy that, that need to be addressed by clear thinking, like rhetorically sound conservatives who would say, okay, whoa, 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 fine. In your own words, immigration department, um, you are simultaneously saying these things are not allowed, but look at the number and the concentration of immigrants that you have accepted who come from a worldview that specifically endorses these things. Do you see an issue with that? And do you see how that policy and what you're doing with it might actually harm Canadians? Because as you said, Mike, phase one is followed by phase two is followed by phase three. And a good example of that is when we saw 9-11 occur were there marches in the street that were pro-Saudi Arabia? Like, did, did we see any signs from the, the, Muslims, the Muslim communities in the Western world that openly celebrated an event that was attributed to a terrorist attack? No. And we have terrorists parachuting in and killing families ripping them from their homes, and we have protests all around the world. I want to give us a little bit of context to this. So conservatism, or Christian conservatism, which is why many of us would have been card-carrying members of the conservative party for many years, is the cultural, social, and political philosophy that seeks to promote and preserve traditional Western institutions. And when we say Western institutions, what we really mean are Christian institutions. So we, we promote the nuclear family. We want Christians to be able to organize with a, with a freedom of conscious, uh, consciousness denominationally, um, but we want to promote law, and we want to promote a, a court system that would uphold law, and that law has to come from some type of authoritative tradition, which we would promote as the Christian rule of law, coming from the supremacy of God. And the opposite, the other option is to say, okay, no, they're all, all worldviews are equal. Let, let the Muslims come. Don't have any immigration policy that would restrict Muslims from coming to this country because that would be racist. Which, by the way, a faith is not. Faith overcomes any type of ethnic origin. We see that within all the world religions. So what we are saying is instead of just, like there's only, that's, that's your only option. You either conserve as a conservative and you put policies in place that conserve the, 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 the traditions of this nation, the Christian traditions, or you allow all types of ideas to come in to be 
morally equivalent. And of course, we are suggesting that you go out and, and politically you hand politicians a policy that they could put on their platform that would promote or restrict immigration from people who would be promoting a Muslim worldview because jihad is intrinsically commanded in that worldview. Let me read you a quote. Many of you know my good friend Joe Boot. We are on each other's podcasts all the time. I'm a fellow at the Ezra Institute. This is what Joe Boot wrote. When did he write Mission of God? At least 10 years ago. At least 10 years ago. I'm thinking it's more like 15 years ago. Listen to what he says. We have already observed throughout this book the widespread capture of the West by the humanistic cult of state-sponsored state polytheism, which we call principled philosophical pluralism. Okay, so just to follow all those big words, secularists said there's no God, we man, we humans are progressively getting better, you can trust human power, you can trust the state in whatever it says, and by the way, we the state who don't really believe in God, all of you can have your little gods because none of them matter because we're going to rule you benevolently. So pluralism is fine. There's no difference between your worldviews. Pat you on the head, Christian. Pat you on the head, Muslim. Pat you on the head, Sikh. Pat you on the head, wherever. We're going to rule you benevolently as humanists. So we've already seen that. That takes a form of multiculturalism and cultural Marxism. Listen to what he says next. He says, this has occurred concurrently with the evident encroachment of the opportunistic Islam, which together are steadily producing social decay and collapse from economic meltdown to family fragmentation and, the riot, and to the rioting and anarchy increasingly seen in our cities. He wrote that 10 years ago. Islam opportunistically sits back and watch for the humanists to welcome them in with their critical theory and their cultural Marxism. The, the Muslims pat the lefties on the head, say, thank you, you're letting us in. Thank you. Yes, we're all equal. Oh, yes, we're so peaceful. Yes, the Quran never says that. Oh, yes, we're going to be loving our neighbors just like the Christians do. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, lefty. Yep. Yeah, little rainbow-haired girl. Yep, we're fine. And they're taking that opportunity and they are seeking the social decay and collapse of our Christian world. And they are commanded to do so in Scripture. And so this is what we need to boldly... One application is we, of, of, of these observations is we need to boldly go to political parties and say, you need to have an anti-Muslim immigration policy. They are dangerous to this country. We need to limit and restrict the number of Muslims that we are bringing into this country. Now, this is on a political level. We're not talking about the personal evangelism of the church. We, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But as on a political level, if we do not change Immigration policy, phase two, will turn to phase three very, very, very quickly. You know, I'm actually just going to jump in there and say, I'm just going to talk about that right now because this is one of the, the critical 
areas of brain fog that the church must vacate immediately. And that is the difference in the role between uh, different social spheres that God has created. When we say to the government, uh, you must limit the number of Muslims immigrating to this country, that is not the same thing as Michael Thiessen saying, I don't want to talk to Muslims and I will not share the gospel with them and I will not hold the door open for them. That is not the same thing because on a personal level, Michael Thiessen does and will, and so will you, engage with people who do not share your worldview and, com and, and command them in God's name to come to Christ. This, this is the commandment of God that you believe in his son. That is the will of God. So you confront the idolatry in individuals and you, you lovingly um, compel them to come to Christ. That is different than the role of the state, which God has explicitly given the sword to protect its people and to protect those who do good. Do you want to have no fear of the government? Then do good, says Romans 13. So, but the government is meant to be a terror to those who do evil. So either beyond our borders or within our borders, the state's job is to protect those who live under the rule of law. If Muslims' stated worldview is to reject and overcome and subdue the, the prevailing legal system, the state has an obligation to suppress them. By, by violent means. And when I say violent, I mean by means of imprisonment or deportation or uh, confinement or execution in some cases, which, which scripture also does uh, endorse. But there, that, that, that difference is so critical. We're not talking about not loving our neighbors who may be in this country already, our, our Muslim neighbors, by sharing the gospel with them, by doing good deeds toward them. Well, and, and particularly, law is a good teacher. Yeah. So that is the other aspect that Christians need to remember. You'll, you, you've heard us say that a hundred times. You can't come to Canada if you're a Muslim. Why? Because Islam is a violent, oppressive, dark, evil worldview. But I want to come to Canada. Well, then reject your, reject your faith. Mm. Like law teaches people to repent. That's what scripture teaches. Yeah. So when, even when you're handing this policy to a politician and say, that's the immigration policy that should be put in place, that becomes an instant opportunity to share about the Lord and to share about God's sovereignty over the lands and to share about all of these principles. So it is, it's, it, we always want to start with relationship. And the reality of it is, is when we get involved, we recognize the sphere of, uh, of government and say, this is, what, this is the law you ought to uphold, it actually leads quite naturally into very impactful... And by the way, that's how nations repent. That's how you have revivals and awakenings when it's usually issue-centered. We have all of the awakenings uh, in, in Britain. We have all of the awakenings in Scotland when the people were confronting public drunkenness is a mass problem, slavery, the oppression of the king. It was, it, it's these issues where people publicly declare the word of the Lord to the situation that is actually the opportunity. If you never say these things out loud, you actually have no opportunity to respond. And if you're looking for your cue about where these battles are taking place and, and what these issues are that Christians are commanded to speak to, that in Mike, as Mike just very astutely pointed out, historically, revivals do take place around issues. 
If you're looking for a cue as to where to find those, they are called, they're given the toxic label of culture war issues. So whenever you see a Christian who doesn't want to be bothered, does not want to get their hands dirty, does not want to enter the fray, does not want negative attention, does not want people to leave their church, they'll say, well, that's a culture war issue, and we're about the gospel over here. That's how you know you ought to be engaged in that subject. Well, immigration, that's a culture war issue. LGBTQ, that's a culture war issue. Educational decisions, that's a culture war issue. That's how you know. Put those all in your bag and say, okay, I got I to gotta focus on those. I got to think those through and I got to act in a Christian way with respect to those things. Because as Mike said, those are teaching moments. Uh, and, and that's where evangelism becomes evangelization. It, be, it begins to snowball from one individual to another who recognize a systematic way that as a society we can do better and we can conform to God's standard and we can pursue blessing together. So we kind of morphed into that per personal response because we like yeah. to talk about that connection. So number one, we need to talk openly and honestly about reforming immigration policy politically. Number two, um, as Christians... We have to realize um, that there is just war theory. There is a time, so this can be developed from the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. Uh, this can be developed from the doctrine of interpositioning. This can be taken, as we've talked about many, many times from Scripture, um, where we're defending the innocent, we're defending those who can't stand for themselves. And so there is going to be a conversation going on with where do we stand to, to, to defend a state like Israel? Where do we stand to defend uh, neighbors who are being attacked? And so having an understanding of a just war response to that. So British philosopher uh, Alexander Mosley said of war, historically the just war tradition is a set of mutually agreed upon rules of combat and may be said to commonly change between two culturally similar enemies. But is this idea that, that we try to establish best practices, we try to establish the, the least amount of casualties for civilians, least collateral damage, and we, we, we actually have to talk about these things as Christians again as these our conflicts are going to come closer to home. He said, sharing a moral identity with whom, uh, with whom one will do business in following peace. That tacit or explicit rules are formed for how wars should be fought and who they should involve and what kind of reactions should apply in the after, sorry, relations should apply in the aftermath of war. So again, Christians who want to say, well, Christians are pacifists. We can't endor endorse war of any kind. Uh, it, it, you, you can't. You, you cannot take that position biblically because it always relies on the person who is morally superior to be harmed in, in that philosophy. Because it gives the morally superior person no justification or recourse against personal attack. And so you have violence traveling in one direction against the righteous. Um, and... And when you see, when you, what you see with Hamas and Israel is that Hamas does not envision uh, an aftermath of war in which they do business with the Jews. 
So Hamas is not worried about or engaged with the, the rules of engagement or just war theory. Their war theory is when they are gone, when the rocks cry out against the Jews, then we'll be done. And so Israel is in a position where they don't get to engage their enemy on an equal playing field. And so people say, well, civilians are going to be killed in Gaza. Yes, Hamas is preventing civilians from leaving. They hide their military installments in civilian um, territory, hospitals, schools, and residential areas. It's, it's ugly. But Christians have to recognize that the world in which we live, there are evils that extend beyond our framework of 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 responses on our framework personal of what responses. is uh, uh, what's that uh, our social beyond, responses. beyond our, a framework of our personal responses because here again we're talking about what would be what should canada's national response yeah like uh, like the government with a military with the authority of god's word to wield the sword as we talked about what should that response be and in this case what you're what you're talking about you know you you i don't want to steal your line you wrote it in the notes you're welcome to but, you know, you are talking about establishing a pro-Israel response because the alternative is the torturing and raping and murdering of anyone. Yeah. And so I, I think we are all, when we're talking about this, the reason why we're talking about this is one thing we do is immigration reform. The other thing we can do is talk to our politicians about having a, a, a foreign policy that unequivocally stands beside societies that want to establish a just society and not just a murderous society, which again, when we are talking economically and we're talking about all these agreements, we know we're talking about a, something that's going to threaten a lot of, of global economic relationships. And but if we've I, got to start talking about it and promoting these things. And if I, can make it, if I can make it more explicitly Christian rather than just relying on well, this is really, really evil, and so you've got to react to that because it's evil. The sixth commandment forbids the murder, um, the taking of innocent life. That does not include acts of war in any means because the Bible actually um, prescribes the capital punishment, the death penalty for a number of offenses. So uh, those, those two things are different. Um, and the positive application of thou shall not kill is thou shall protect innocent life. How do you do that? You are not always offered the, 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 the clear and clean moral circumstance that you would like in order to do what is righteous in the sight of God. So that applies personally with our loved ones and our family, the use of force in protecting uh, women and children who are innocent. And that, of course, extends to international affairs where the innocent are being attacked. I'm not talking about moral innocence. I'm not talking about, oh, don't you believe in depravity? Everyone deserves death. No, I'm talking about judiciary innocence. I'm talking about legal innocence. People who have done nothing to harm anybody, who are not engaged in the act of warfare, and they've not affronted anybody, who are being executed and literally murdered, the response must be just. And that's when, by obedience to the sixth commandment, we engage this subject, not as bloodthirsty revengists, if I can use that word, but as, uh, as the hands and feet of Jesus, if you will, by extending the righteousness of God. People don't have to think of the hands and feet of Jesus as being a violent force, but, it, but in, in keeping with the commandments of God, which Jesus said, those who love him will keep, we are at times obligated by opportunity and 
uh, opportunity obviously being a, a poor word, it's not, it's not a good opportunity, but at times we necessity. confront necessity, thank you. Um, we are engaged in these circumstances um, and, and Christians mu must be ready to think through these things and act through them. And, so, it's, and it's, there's a lot of gravitas to we know we're going. We know we're going long on this, so we'll, we'll conclude this, and I'll just conclude it with, with this, set, this idea. So this, again, is the difference between a judicial, lawful response and a personal, vengeful response. Mm -hmm. So going into the personal realm, this is an area where I love and I pray for my Muslim neighbors, if I am offended by something they do on the street, I uh, turn the other cheek and I, 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 I pour out hospitality. All of these things on a personal level, I, I share the gospel with them. I, I open myself up at times to, to potential danger in order to teach them the gospel. As individual Christians, this is where Christ's commands and scriptural commands about the neighbor are on a, on a personal level can be very loving. And not one of us should leave this room going, look at these atrocities and, and wanting, wanting blood and, and to be bloodthirsty. We're, we're praying for peace. We're, we're praying for God's forgiveness for individuals. On the other hand, what Tim has been talking about is we can promote justice and we ought to promote justice. And if we're ever put in a position to execute justice, lawfully, then we seek justice on behalf of those who have been murdered and killed mm -hmm. in Israel. So, obviously we have not gotten through the whole topic, but we are now at 9.35. We're going to wrap it there. We are, we are thankful. Everybody in the audience, can you just give us a, a, a rousing, that was the best night ever, like, like some really big cheers, like, like, whoa. Yeah, we're thankful that you joined us for a live other club with Mike and Tim. And uh, we're glad you've joined us. Listeners, we're glad you've joined us as well. And we'll see you next week on the other club. Godspeed. Godspeed.